Father of mercy, we, we revel in your mercy this morning. A mercy that is mediated exclusively in the Son of God, by the Son of God. Through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. We worship the Father, Son, and Spirit this morning, the triune God. And we thank you that we know you as a God of mercy. And Father, our hearts grieve this morning because we recognize that though a plan has been put in place through the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, the all-sufficient work of our Christ, things are not yet the way they're supposed to be. We long come, Lord Jesus, even as we pray for the families of those in Florida, in Parkland, Florida, who have lost their precious sons and daughters. Father, I pray for the perpetrator that justice would be seen in this young man, even as we pray that you would save him. Lord, that you would open his eyes to his need for the Savior, Christ Jesus. And we pray your peace and your comforts on these families. And we pray for the churches in Parkland. Lord, that you would give them wisdom, discernment, open doors to minister the only remedy for this kind of pain and suffering. Father, we pray as well for Nigeria. We thank you for what you're doing there. As the gospel is thriving in the church there in Nigeria, the enemy doesn't like it. And Father, this tragedy this morning reminds us of that. We pray, Lord, for those who are suffering deeply today because of what has happened in these nine churches. Pray your grace, your mercy, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come to Nigeria, your will be done. And give the the families of those who have lost loved ones their daily bread today. A bread that is actually a person. The son of God, the manna, the true bread. The one in whom we eat and never hunger again. I just pray for your grace on them. And Father, now as we come to the preaching of the word, we come and pray your spirit would give us eyes to behold your worth, your work, and your glory in the face of your son. In whose name we pray. Amen. Philippians 1, 3 to 8, the apostle Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all. With the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father we thank you for this text. We pray that your spirit would give us eyes. To behold your glory. In the face of your son, by the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1944, the Allied forces were planning their invasion of Normandy. And there was the British 
Navy that was also making their plans. And there was a chaplain on a British ship. And his name was Brofton Knox. And he said that at that time on that ship, there was a singleness of mind. A singleness of purpose. No one on this ship, no matter the rank, was concerned with his own self-interest. But only how he could aid his shipmates in the success of this task and purpose. In their commonly shared gold. Uh, Knox said later in his memoirs. I remember noting in my mind. How I had never been happier. I mean think about that. They're about to invade Normandy. He's never been happier. After D-Day and uh, the Brits returned to England though. Knox said that he and everyone on that ship began to, to notice a difference in disposition on the ship. And some of the shipmates approached him. He was the chaplain and they asked him why. And here was his answer. The answer is quite simple. During those months that preceded and followed D-Day, our thoughts had a minimum of self-centeredness in them. We gave ourselves to our shared activity and objective. But once the overtaking was over, we reverted to our own purposes as we do normally. So Knox was thinking in terms of the partnership that these people experienced in sacrificially partaking in this common goal. Now, from a Christian perspective, this partnership and common partaking stems from our collective participation in Christ by His Spirit. That's exactly the language Paul uses in Philippians 2, verse 1. And the word we typically identify with that is the word fellowship. It's from the Greek word koinonia. Now, the concept of fellowship is often misunderstood in our churches. So... It works this way, typically. If you invite a, an unbeliever over to your house, it's evangelism. But if you invite a believer to your house, it's fellowship. If you go to an early Sunday morning event at your church, it's going to church service. But if you stay for dinner on the grounds, it's fellowship. But when Paul was writing... The word fellowship took on commercial overtones. For example, say for instance that Peter and John want to start a fishing business. So they go in and they sacrifice from their own resources and they purchase a boat for their fishing business. Peter and John have entered into a fellowship. A partnership. And so the, the core of fellowship is the self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Now, with that in mind, Christian fellowship is a collective self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. And all the implications of the gospel for the purpose and for the sake of 
of God's glory in Christ's kingdom. And to the degree that a church has that as her vision, there will be unity in the church. Because like on that ship, that naval ship, everyone had the same purpose and goal. And to the degree that a church does not have that as her vision, there will be division and disunity. And division, though it's our norm in a fallen world, is disastrous. It's disastrous at the individual level and at the corporate level. Individually, it brings us under the discipline of God because it invites an opportunity for the devil. That's what Paul is speaking of in Ephesians 4, verses 27 to 32. Division invites an opportunity for the devil. It also stunts our spiritual growth. At the corporate level, it invites the discipline of God for a couple of reasons. First of all, division bears false witness to an accomplishment of Jesus Christ and his cross and his resurrection. When Christ was raised, Paul says that he brought reconciliation. It's a vertical reconciliation with God, but it's also horizontal reconciliation. He has made the two one new man in Christ. And so disunity and division bears false witness to that. Division proclaims that Christ's gospel is not sufficient to unite us. That's bearing false witness. A second reason it is disastrous at the corporate level is that it hamstrings the Great Commission. A house divided cannot stand. It distracts us from the Great Commission. When you're always having to deal with turmoil in the body that has nothing to do with ultimate things... It distracts from the ultimate things. Paul understands this. He's heard that there is division in Philippi. We will see that in chapter 2. We'll see that in chapter 4. Which means that their common kingdom vision is being eclipsed by selfish ambition. Division is always the fruit of selfish ambition. And in this opening section, he reminds them of what made them a healthy church. Because by all standards, relatively speaking, the the Philippian church was a healthy church in the New Testament. That is, Paul says, you are partners and partakers In the gospel of grace. First thing we see here is that they indeed are partners in the gospel. Notice with me in verses 3 to 4. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all. Making my prayer with joy. Now, I'm at one and the same time grateful and convicted That the Apostle Paul is not writing from cushy circumstances. He's not writing from a Roman country club. He's writing from a jail. And it's very possible at this point. History reveals he did not die in this imprisonment. But it's very possible that that could happen. 
And this drives home the fact, now this is so important for us all. This drives home the fact for every Christian that your circumstances, your location, and your relationships do not have to be ideal. They don't even have to be good in order for you to have a grateful heart. In order for you to have joy. The precursor to gratitude is praise. And it's clear that Paul has a heart of praise. The word praise is not used here, but it's inferred. For instance, in verse 2 we saw, he proclaims grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If someone says that to you with fervency, you know that person is worshiping. But you see it as well in verse 3. He says, I thank my God. Isn't that beautiful? I thank my God. Can you say that this morning? Can you say, he's my God. He's my God. Praise for my God. Who is personal and infinite and unchanging in his wisdom, his sovereignty, and his goodness is a precursor to gratitude. And that's why the symptoms of ingratitude signal and reflect a heart whose praise has gone rogue. Misdirected praise. Because make no mistake, at all times, all people are praising something. Even atheists are praising something. Our hearts were created to praise, and praise our hearts will do. Our hearts praise that which we find most important and significant and ultimate. And if it's not the true and living God, rest assured, your Messiah will not come through for you. And hence, in gratitude... The symptoms of ingratitude are numerous. Relational dysfunction. I have never seen two people whose hearts are set on the praise of the true and living God who cannot get along with each other. Relational dysfunction is the fruit of a heart that's gone rogue, that's ungrateful. Worry, anxiety are the fruit. Of ingratitude and praise that's gone rogue. Anger, entitlement, selfishness. And all of these terms I get from Philippians. Because they were rearing their ugly head with these Christians. And the Apostle Paul's thanksgiving in prison reveals that Jesus... And only Jesus frees us from the tyranny of false worship, misdirected worship, misdirected praise, and ingratitude. And that's why Thanksgiving is a recurring theme in Paul's writings. In fact, you see it in Philippians. Later on, he will say in Philippians 4, for instance, Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your hearts be, your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. Eighteen times in Paul's writings, Paul express, expresses thanksgiving to God. Ten times 
He commands us to give thanks because our hearts so easily wander. Lord, I feel it. There, in fact, there are over 140 references to thanksgiving in our canon. Ingratitude was at the heart of our first parents' rebellion. And it's at the center of what's fallen about us today. Paul says that in Romans 1. Although they knew him as God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. And so a central purpose of thanksgiving is to restore the honor of God in our hearts. That's a central purpose of thanksgiving, to restore the honor of God in our hearts. As God says in Psalm 50, he who sacrifices thanksgiving offerings honors me. And when, here it is, the point, when the honor of God has been restored to your heart and it becomes the theme of a people, fellowship is the fruit. Not division, not infighting. And note the extensiveness of Paul's thanksgiving. Four times he uses the word, it's, it's the same word in Greek, it's translated differently in English for just stylistic purposes. But listen, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. And note the connection here between thanksgiving and joy. Making my prayer with joy. We're hardwired for joy. Everything we do is designed to find joy. Blaise Pascal said, even the man who hangs himself. The DNA of joy is thanksgiving. An ungrateful heart is a joyless heart. To say it another way, the joyful life grows in the soil of gratitude. Of course, we saw in Galatians 5.22 when we studied that last fall that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. The joy of the Lord is always the joy of the triune God. Keep that in mind. Its source is the triune God. It is in the triune community, if you will, that joy is seen in its perfection. In fact, it was out of the overflow of that joy that creation came to be. Why? Because joy does not remain isolated. And so, it's that joy, the joy of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that is the fountainhead of true community and fellowship. And I think Paul's example here is an inspired means To awaken us up to that. Now why do I say that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, several times in his writings, he calls us to imitate him as he imitates Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1, be an example. But there's a second reason. He's going to later admonish them to 
Cultivate this joy. Rejoice in the Lord, he says of Philippians 4. Now in verse 5, we begin to see key reasons why Paul is thankful and has joy. You say, well, I thought joy was the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, but the Lord uses means. Notice in verse 5. The reason he has gratitude and joy for these people is that they have entered into fellowship, partnership with Paul in the work of the gospel. Verse 5, he says, I give thanks to my God because of your partnership. That word, koinonia. It's a word I give it to you because you're familiar with it. Most of you are. Because of your partnership, your fellowship, it could be translated, in the gospel. From the first day, back in 51 AD, when the church was planted, when God opened the heart of Lydia and opened the heart of the, of the, the jailer, he says, until now. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is this. God is infinitely holy. We are not. We are comprehensively unholy. God is infinitely righteous. We are not. We are comprehensively unrighteous. God is just, we are unjust. And yet God in his grace, his mercy, his wisdom has devised a plan where he can remain infinite in his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice and save the sinner by sending his son, Jesus Christ, as our substitute. He satisfied wrath in the son, divine self-satisfaction by divine self-substitution. And God received that payment and raised him from the dead, declaring... Signaling, debt has been paid for everyone who will trust in the Son. That's the gospel. The English word, gospel, comes from the Middle English. Now, what is the Middle English? It was the language that was spoken somewhere between the 11th and 16th centuries. And that Middle English was the word Godspell, which came from two Middle English words, good and spell, which meant story. Good story. In Old English, to tell a story was to cast a spell. I'm not talking magic here. It's to cast a spell. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good spell, good story. That captures the imagination and the hearts of those who behold Christ and receive that gospel. And this good story had captured the imagination of both Paul and the Philippians. It was clear. The gospel was not just useful to them. Sometimes my fear is that people seek to use the gospel to avoid hell. Well, that's not salvation. The gospel was not useful to them. It was beautiful. There's a vast difference between the two. And when the gospel is beautiful to you, it reflects itself. It goes public. And in this case, in their partnership for the gospel, sacrificing for this common kingdom vision, even financially. Now, why do I bring that up? I don't bring money up generally until it's in the text. But in one of Paul's wonderful passages on these very Philippians, he brings it up. In 2 Corinthians 8, listen to this. He's speaking about the churches in Macedonia. Now, we saw that Paul had this 
vision from this Macedonian. He said, come help me. And so Paul and his team went to Macedonia, which was in northern Europe. Philippi was the leading city of Macedonia. We saw that last week. Thessalonica was also one of those cities. John Bevel and Daniel Kraft and I were there. Uh, we didn't go to Philippi, but we were in Thessalonica, and we were told by our missionary that Philippi was just 15 miles away or so. I would have loved to have seen it. But here's what Paul is saying about this partnership in the gospel in 2 Corinthians 8, that it bears repeating. Listen to what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Again, Philippi is the leading city in Macedonia. And how do we know grace was given? Because grace always goes public. It doesn't remain hidden. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, look at it, joy, and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, out of compulsion. No, it's not what it says. Of their own accord. Begging us earnestly. Take up the offering again, Paul. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. There's the word, coining the end. Taking part, participating, partnership in the relief. Of the saints. Of course, the saints being in Jerusalem. The poor saints in Jerusalem. And this not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. And so as much as Paul is an example to us here. So are the Philippians. And this question, I think, bears asking. Do you make it easy? For others to give thanks with joy. Because of your sacrificial conformity to the gospel. For the purpose of Christ's kingdom. Now Paul's second reason for giving thanks is related to the first. They have partnered in the gospel to the point of sacrifice... And as a result of that, he is sure that God has begun a good work in them that he will complete. Notice when verse 6, he says, And I'm sure of this, based on the fact that you have partnered with me in the gospel sacrificially, which is the evidence of your salvation. Let's keep this in mind. It wasn't the way they got saved. It was the fruit of their salvation. There's nothing we do to be saved. We're in a world of hurt if that is the case. Because God's standard is perfection. It was the fruit of their salvation. And he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, because I've seen the good work, it's gone public, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he's going to mention that day two times in the first few verses of chapter 1. It's the day of Christ's returns when he restores all things, sums up all things. He fixes the broken things, makes the sad things come untrue. And all the enemies of God in Christ are brought underneath the feet of Jesus. There will be no suffering. There will be no sorrow in that day or sin. The good work that he is referring to here 
is their salvation. Of course, that good work is grounded by the good work par excellence, the Christ work. Who fulfilled all the terms of the law for us. Died on the cross taking the law's demands and being punished for them. And being raised for our forgiveness. But this is referring to their salvation, which will reach its perfection when Christ returns. And their sacrificial partnership in this gospel and their willingness to suffer for the gospel. We'll see that in chapter 1 verse 29. Is the confirmation of this good work. God's good work of regeneration had rescued them from spiritual death. God's good work of justification had rescued them from guilt and condemnation. God's good work of adoption and reconciliation had rescued them from alienation. But God will not stop until he has liberated every believer comprehensively, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power, the presence, and the influence of sin. That is the promise of 1 verse 6. Yes, we're going to stumble in this life. The Philippians, you're going to see plenty of stumbling as we get later into this letter. And we all know the angst, okay? The angst that haunts us when we have fallen short of Christ-like love. Because we have the Spirit. We've all been there. The last time you, you gossiped and complained about a brother or sister. And you, you almost immediately regretted it. And yet here you are. Doing it all over again. And the enemy taunts you. You hypocrite. You call yourself a Christian. And the Bible calls us to respond, yes, guilty as charged. But I have an advocate to the Father who has covered my hypocrisy by his blood and his righteousness. He has been raised from the grave for my pardon. And my status cannot be changed by my sinful behavior. And it's preaching that gospel to ourselves constantly that changes our hearts. And so Paul's first two reasons for joyful gratitude are seen by this theological connection. They had demonstrated sacrificial partnership with him for the cause of the gospel. And as a result, it was confirmation that God had begun a good work in them that he will complete. In other words, justification and sanctification are best friends. Those God justifies, he does sanctify. Indeed, it was... Evidence that they were truly partakers of grace. Notice in verses 7 and 8. Not only are they partners in the gospel, they are partakers of grace. I love this. I love it when Paul alliterates for me. He does the hard work. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. By the way, this is not... Special forces Christianity. This is normal Christianity. Anything falls short of this, 
is a parody. Okay? I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. Not that Paul sometimes lies, and so he has to preface it with God is my witness to ensure he's not lying this time. But he is saying before the Lord, I am not speaking hyperbolically. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Powerful. Now, defense and confirmation. Notice those terms. They're legal terms. They either refer to Paul's initial phase of imprisonment and trial with Rome where he defended the gospel. Or maybe he's just speaking more generally of his defense of the truth and defense of the gospel throughout his ministry. Either way, Paul is saying that they, the Philippians, selflessly stood by him to meet his needs in every way. Keep in mind, in a day when to be put in prison was to be shamed. And they were willing to shame themselves to stand by this man. They were fellowshippers. They were partakers of grace with him. That is my prayer for Fisherville. That people from the outside could say of Fisherville Church, they are partakers of grace. It's the greatest testimony we could ever have of a church. Now in verse 8, Paul says that what's fueled the intensity of his love is that very thing. Verse 8 is a stunning statement. And it It requires us to pause and reflect on it a moment. He yearns for them all with the affection of Christ. Notice the word all. Do you think there were people in Philippian church that got under his skin? Of course there was. He's a human like me and you. But he yearned for even those that got under his skin. And notice, it wasn't some kind of natural love that he had. He says, with the affections of Christ Jesus. Now, here's what it seems to be saying. And every commentator agrees with this. This is not even up for debate, but it's radical. It appears that Christ's love for the Philippians is being expressed through Paul. He's a conduit of Christ's love. You say, well, he was an apostle. Read Romans 7. He's just like you and me. He is a sinner in need of grace, just like you and me. So don't confuse the office with his humanity. He's a conduit of Christ's love. How can that be? Christ's perfect love was being communicated through this sinful agent. Well, you remember Galatians 2.20. We looked at this in the fall. I think this is the key to understanding this verse. Because in Galatians 2.20, Paul gives us the description of the Christian life. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. So you may do something in the church or in my marriage. My spouse may do something that I don't naturally like. But I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live. 
Because the I who used to live messes up everything. It screws up marriages. It screws up churches. But I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live. Now here. But it's Christ who lives in me. That's what Paul is referring to here. This new life is not turning over a new leaf. That's false religion. It's a person. It's a person. These new desires that I have aren't because I'm so wonderful. And I was raised in a Christian home. Jesus is being formed in me. Jesus is being formed in you. That's the Christian life. Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's the idea here. Jesus lives by his spirit. We need a Trinitarian God to be saved, by the way. God in Christ, by his spirit, lives in Paul. And Paul's love for the saints is Jesus' love for the saints expressed through Paul. That's radical. No, it's not. That's normal Christianity. That is Christianity 101. Think about this. The very affection that led the Son of God to take on human flesh, to be born in a low condition, to undergo the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and to be buried in a borrowed tomb and remain under death for a time. That very affection is being expressed through Paul. The affection that he showed you when you were an enemy to him. And he made propitiation so that you could be a friend of God. There's not a person in this church you can't love with that kind of affection. And that affection was being communicated through Paul, but it's communicated, get this, through every Christian who is filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit-filled life is the Christ-filled life. The very affection to love my God... To love my neighbor as myself. To love my troublesome brothers and sisters in the church. And we're all troublesome at times, aren't we? Even the pastor here. To love, get this, your spouse. Your spouse. No matter the issues in your marriage. To love your spouse. Is ours. In Christ, by His Spirit. That's the Christian life. And without this affection, the very affection of Christ, our natural hearts are too conditional and too puny to express themselves in any other way but self-love. But the good news of the gospel is the capacity shown by Paul here are the very capacities we have in Christ by Spirit. Question, as we close here. At the individual level, 
It's a very important question. Please don't leave here without thinking about this question. Have you leveraged your life like Paul and the Philippians towards sacrificial partnership for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ? Now, I recognize, I've heard those kind of questions my whole life. And, and asking questions like that does not change my heart. I've had pastors, are you being holy? Well, that doesn't change my heart. That's like asking a short man, are you, uh, you know, are you six foot ten? You can make the NBA. But that is a, a very important diagnostic question, just like a physician. When he presses on your body and he says, does this hurt? It's a diagnostic question because the answer to that question reveals whether you're living the Christian life or a parody. And again, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Yes, I have preferences. There's things that happen with my spouse, my children. The people at the church that I don't necessarily prefer. But it's not an ultimate issue. I've been crucified. And it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives within me. With the very affections of Christ being communicated through me. The answer to that question is so fundamental and crucial for you. The stakes are so high. Individually and corporately. Partakers... And partners in the gospel of grace. That's the sum total of the Christian life. And that's why the stakes are so high. Your joy, your gratitude, your contentment, God's glory being magnified in your life, which is your very purpose for breathing, they're all at stake. And at the, at the corporate level, you know what's at stake? Our witness. And the very great commission itself. That's what makes this text so vital. And the only remedy. Immerse yourself. In the gospel of Christ. Confess your sin. And allow the spirit of Christ to take over. So that you stop living naturally. Which is the basis for all your problems. And you start living And loving like Christ himself. Let's pray. Father of mercy. We recognize. Even as we consider this text. That none of us partner. And sacrifice for the gospel as we should. We're novices at this. And that's why we need the gospel, even as believers. Thank you that even our pitiful and anemic aims at partnering for the sake of the gospel is covered by Christ, his righteousness, and his blood. And yet, Lord, we know your spirit does not want us to remain in this this condition. There is a promise that you who began a good work in us will complete it. And we're asking you to complete it here by enlarging our capacity to love you and each other for the sake of Christ. 
and in the power of Christ. We ask this for his sake. Amen.